The Dance of Gods, Book One, Spell of Catastrophe, written and read by Mayor Alan Brenner. Chapter Ten, Shaw and Mont go boating. I don't know about this, Mont said. The amount of preparation goes in direct proportion to the length of the boat desired. The length of the boat? Yes, Shaw said, at the waterline. Now be quiet. This is perfectly straightforward. Jerton Mont looked at the new knife in his hand and the iron bar in Shaw's. A muscle in his neck sent lancing pains up toward his ear whenever he moved. They'd been hunched over behind the crate on a quiet stretch of wharf for the last half hour. Waiting for the guard. This guy is crazy, Mont thought. Shaw, for his part, was right at home, having spent a significant portion of his life hunched over under similar circumstances. In this kind of operation he would have preferred to drop unexpectedly from above, but taking into account the limited experience of his new colleague, a simpler and less flashy plan had seemed appropriate. Still... Suddenly Shaw felt a nudge in his side. Mont, barely visible in the dim splashes of light from a lantern gently swaying from its bracket on the wall of a nearby warehouse, pointed down the wharf. Shaw held up two fingers and waggled them interrogatively. Mont nodded. Shaw produced three largish pebbles, took aim, and tossed. The rocks landed some yards to the side along the wharf, one, two, three, sounding to the suspicious ear just like three hurried, somewhat stealthy footsteps. Mont grasped his knife gingerly around the guard and reversed it, presenting the hilt. The familiar rattle of carasses and running men became audible over the splat of river swells, then increased. Two guardsmen burst into sight around the corner of the crate. They paused, looking away toward the source of the spectral footsteps. Shaw swung his bar. The second guardsman heard a muffled clunk, mixed with the clang of ringing metal, wheeled, saw a glinting streak as Mont's knife hurtled hilt first past his nose, blinked, opened his mouth, and went for his sword. Shaw let the bar continue its follow-through, using its angular momentum to help throw himself forward, half leapt, half fell over the subsiding form of the first guardsman, and slammed fist first into the second. The man exhaled forcefully as Shaw compressed his chest, then he fell roughly to the deck, quivered briefly, and relaxed. Shaw bashed the man's head on the planks once more for good measure, stood up, dusted off his hands, and retrieved the bar. "'Good balance,' he said, hefting the bar." One must never overlook a promising rubbish heap. You wouldn't believe some of the useful things people just toss away. Why are we doing this, Mont said. We could easily have avoided these guys. When we arrive at the palace, Shaw said, fastidiously wiping off the bar, we're going to want a disguise, since nobody knows all of these guardsmen anyway. You get the idea? Uh, yeah, but why waste the time now? We could have been in the palace already. I'm sure they've got plenty of guard in there. Shaw raised an eyebrow. Indeed. However, when we get there, I imagine we may be rather busy. Here, give me a hand. The carasses buckle at the shoulder and under the arms. How much of this stuff do we need? Mont said, fumbling in the gloom. Carass, sword belt, and jerkin. The rest isn't standard. It looks to be what each man was wearing when they signed up. You've got the same kind of leggings anyway, so you should do fine. They worked in silence, punctuated by grunts from Mont. This thing doesn't fit, he said finally. They never do. 
Shah, however, due to his previous experience, had had the foresight to choose the guardsmen closest to his own size. One of the men groaned and stirred. Aren't we going to do something to them? Mont said, looking around. You're welcome to roll them into the river if you want, Shah said, his voice now some distance away. I tend to choose the path of forbearance, on the grounds that we live in a world full with enough casual violence as it is. One should remember that these men are not necessarily evil, just guards, which is a job, not a predilection. Ah, here we are. His shape rematerialized at Mont's side. Mont jumped, his new caress rattling. This, I believe, is yours. A shard of light became Mont's knife, balancing neatly on its point in the center of Shah's palm. Thanks, Mont said. He grabbed the knife and slid it into his belt on the opposite hip from his sword. If we don't throw them in a river, what's the alternative? Clang, clang. Shaw replaced the bar in his belt. By the time they wake up, we'll be on the island. Come on. The wharves occupied most of the long, east-facing curve of Rusing Ulvaya's riverfront, jutting out into the slack current, pulling back, winding around artificial pools and coves. Hundreds of vessels rocked at their moorings against the wharves or in the confusion of cheaper spots just offshore, vessels ranging in size from dinghies up to the massive cargo-hauling river barges. Here and there a light twinkled in a cabin or a lantern picked out the dim spider-spins of rigging. The air was quiet, though, lacking the usual floating strains of river melodies and the lilt of harsh voices raised in strife. This one, Shaw announced, staring over the edge of the wharf. Why that one? Are you going to be difficult again? But it's tiny. You were expecting perhaps the venerable yacht? We don't want to attract attention, while on the other hand, we don't want to get swamped. Observe the relatively high gunnels. Actually, Shaw had considered, as a possibility, stowing away on the venerable yacht, but the scheduling had proved inconvenient. The twin uprights of a ladder poked skyward at the edge of the wharf. Shaw indicated the ladder with a hand, Mont descended, and Shaw picked his way carefully after him. The bottom rungs were coated with slime and led to a small platform floating at the base and a boat moored to the platform. The swells went slap, slap, slap against the side of the boat. Go ahead, said Shaw. Get in. The boat in question was apparently used for local net fishing and the tending of crustacean pots. Its length was three fathoms, or a little less, but it was narrow enough in beam for one person to handle the pair of oars amidships. The gunwales were indeed high, matching Shaw's requirements. The state of the river was somewhat agitated. Shaw, Maud said, there's some very scummy water in the bottom of this thing. It's called bilge. Shaw said, casting off the stern line and proceeding along the wharf toward the bow. Everything has a name. He released the bow line, tossed it into the boat, and stepped gingerly after it. In fact, scummy bilge is a good sign. That means the water has been sitting there for a long time. So? No, don't sit there. Sit in the bow. The front. Shaw arranged himself between the oars, facing aft. The boat rocked as Mott lurched forward. If the water has been stagnating there for weeks, that would mean the boat has not been leaking. Oh, Mont said. That's good. Indeed. Now I will row, and you're going to guide and fend. Push off. Mont leaned over, shoving at the nearest piling. The prow spun slowly toward the river. 
Shaw craned his neck around, sighted down past the end of the wharf, and began to paddle. The boat moved tentatively ahead and nosed out into the current. I think there's something up ahead, big, Mont said. Shaw looked around again. I see it, he said. Now keep your voice down. Shaw backed water with the starboard oar, then stroked carefully. The boat proceeded along a hulking wall festooned with freshwater barnacles, edged around an anchor chain leading silently off into the darkness, and regained course. I think it's open now. Good. Shaw checked. Mont's assessment had been accurate. Do you see the palace, the second island from the left? Yes, I see it. I know where the palace is. We will steer thirty degrees to port to compensate for the current. That's the left. I knew that. Indeed, Shaw said. He rowed, grunting occasionally. Between the swells and the current, the outing was fairly strenuous. Probably a storm upriver someplace, Shaw thought. Things could be worse. Mont looked back toward the shore. The ground level rose gently as one retreated through the city away from the river, so rank after rank of rooftops and protruding upper stories ascended into the distance, lit by the patchy orange glow of torchlights. The black shadows of barges swayed uneasily in the foreground. Their boat was swaying, too, in two axes, not only side to side but forward and back as well. Mont began to hear, faintly, the nasal honk of a distant foghorn. Uh, Shaw? Mont said. I'm not feeling too good. Are you seasick, or do you hear a foghorn? No, indeed. Then I'm starting to synchronize. I think it's the way these waves are hitting the boat. Clouds of fluffy white were moving in from the corners of his vision. Don't fade now, Shaw said. Here, you row for a while. It will give you something else to concentrate on. We had a sorcerer, Mont said weakly. We wouldn't have to row. If we had a sorcerer, what you would have to worry about would be much more serious. Shaw shipped oars and moved to the bow. Mont eased reluctantly past him. Stroke, Shaw said. Mont's learning curve was steep. They spent several minutes moving up its slope before they straightened out again on course. The island of the Palace of the Venerants slowly approached. The river gurgled around them. We're getting there, Mont panted. What do we do when we get there? As we have done to date, improvise. More starboard oar, please. See, isn't that better? I'll take over in a moment. How well do you know the palace? The island, too, for that matter. I know how to get to the dungeons if I start in the right place. And the secret passages? What secret passages? Every palace has secret passages, especially those with dungeons. I thought you said you'd find them. I had thought you might be able to help save some time. If you can find them, I'll be glad to use them. Mont fell silent, except for the sound of loud gasping. Shaw glowered back at him. Perhaps I'd best take over now, he said. I'd hate to have to stop right in the midst of everything interesting because my aide-de-camp had gone into heart failure. Mont gratefully released the oars and fell over. The boat twisted in the current and began to move south. Shaw clambered over Mont onto the oar bench, dipped a hand over the side, and splashed water in Mont's face. Mont sputtered. Shaw rode. Mont gradually recovered his breath and struggled back to the bow. 
He looked ahead at the approaching island. Where are we going to land? This is the side with the docks and the beaches, but it'll probably be loaded with guards. There is little probably involved. You forget, however, that we are also guards. Shaw rattled his caress. Yes, but landing from the river in a snapper boat? That is a very good point, Shaw said, pleased. You are acquiring a sense for details. If we cannot land on this most convenient side, then, what about the others? Well, there's rock, cliffs, walls, that kind of thing. Indeed, said Shaw. How climbable are they? They're not supposed to be climbable at all. Hmm. Shaw thought about it, steering against the current to the north of the island in the meantime. Finally, he said, let us have a look at the north wall. The island was still ahead, but it was beginning to slip around to their right. Atop the rocks and curtain walls were the lights of torches and watchfires, casting splashes of red and yellow across the towers and crenellations. The building was a palace, primarily by convention, having started life as the local imperial garrison keep centuries before, in the time of a greater empire. The fortifications had been designed to resist a large-scale assault, and had indeed successfully done this several times over the years. Still, Mont thought, a few hand-picked, highly trained, supremely motivated men might— Mont stopped himself. It wouldn't help to treat this thing like it was just another adventure story. While Mont daydreamed, Shaw considered logistics. First, they would have to land the boat. Second, climb the wall and get into the palace complex. Third, act unobtrusive long enough to sidle undiscovered into the dungeons. Fourth, free the prisoners. The right prisoners, Shaw amended sourly, remembering an annoying exploit that had come to involve an axe murderer some years before. Fifth, and subsequent, no doubt overpower the troops, overthrow Carr, and overcome the inevitable apathy of the populace. By then, it should at least be time for breakfast. We're getting pretty close, Mont said. Shaw glanced to his left as he faced the stern of the boat, at the long sweep of shadowed wall now immediately downstream, and surveyed its height. The shadows were surmounted sixty or seventy feet above the water by an abrupt line of twinkling torchlights and the shifting forms of men, the line broken by silhouettes of catapults in troughs for boiling oil. Water foamed a faint glowing blue at the base of the rock. Look there, Shaw said. Just ahead of their position, a narrow bar of sediment protruded from the tip of the island, built up by the currents behind a lee in the rocks. That? Mont squeaked. You've got to be quiet, Shaw said. Please. The spot would be big enough for the boat, barely, but only if the boat could be made to arrive there. Shaw angled the prow and dipped with one oar, and the current propelled the boat in roughly the right direction. The noise of the water increased, waves crashed against the rocks on both sides, the boat bounced, again the boat leaped, something grated under Mont's feet, the wood vibrating angrily, the bow rose up and came down on a rock, timbers boomed and splintered, and then another wave lifted the keel cleanly and set the boat down on the beach. Mont fell over the side and clutched weakly at the cracked prow. It came away in his hand. Ah, Mont said in a thin voice. You, you, how lucky can you expect to skill, my friend? Shaw said distractedly. He was standing on a log, protruding from the packed gravel, looking up at the rocks and the wall. But the boat, it'll never sail again. How are we going to get 
you did plan to free prisoners, yes? Perhaps deal with Carr in the bargain? Obviously, the route of our departure would be different. Ah, Maud said. Ah, obviously, of course. Ah, uh, what now, then? He tilted his head back, too. The rocks went upward at an angle that approximated the vertical. Water splashed around his ankles. Shaw brushed spray from his eyes and squinted. There, look there, halfway up and somewhat to the right. Then Maud saw it, too. A small area of the cliff face splashed with a gentle orange glow. The glow did not come from the battlements above. A window, Shaw said, of some type. From under his cloak, shrugging off a shoulder strap, Shaw produced a leather bag the length of his arm. He undid the thong at one end and withdrew a squared-off cylinder of wood bound with metal bands and other attachments. Several smaller parts followed. Shaw swung two supports out from the sides of the cylinder, and its form became apparent. A crossbow, Maud said. Indeed. Shaw placed the butt end against a log embedded in the ground, snapped out a small pedal on the underside of the body, now several feet in the air, positioned his foot on the pedal, and stood up on it. With a smooth metallic whine, barely audible over the crash of the river's swells, the pedal sank slowly down. The mechanism works, I believe, on an armature of nested springs. Shaw again consulted the leather bag, which now yielded a lumpy arrow and a reel of thin cord. Observe, he said. He clipped a fastener from the cord to the arrow's trailing end, held the arrow in front of the fletching, and struck its blunt point sharply against the remains of the boat. The sharp spring! Half a dozen rods snapped outward from the front half of the arrow to stick out radially from the tip like spokes. Shaw displayed the grapnel, then folded the hinged arms back against the shaft and engaged the locking device. That's the most improbable thing I've ever seen, Mont said incredulously, but it's never going to hold our weight. We're both going to die. Prepare to be surprised, Shaw said dryly. The fabricator specializes in such devices. He has a remarkable obsession with the mechanical. What friend is this one? Max, Shaw said. The same Max. The same one who taught Shaw his fencing? That sounded pretty far-fetched, but so did most everything Shaw said. Mont decided Shaw must be testing him again in some weird way. He figured he'd better be non-committal. This Max guy sure must get around. Yes, he does at that. Shaw had now attached the reel of line to a socket at the butt end of the crossbow, and carefully seated the arrow within its guides. He backed out along the log to the edge of the lapping water, raised the crossbow, sighted down the mark at the brighter spot in the cliff, and sprung the catch. The arrow lunged out, the reel of cord humming busily behind it, and disappeared into the rocks. Shaw had cocked his head to listen, and now he nodded with satisfaction. I will go first, he said. Where? How do you know where it is? How do you know the thing's even holding? All I ask is some modicum of trust, Shaw said testily. He collapsed the crossbow and stowed it in its bag, slung the bag back under his cloak, and put his weight on the cord. The cord held. Rocks reared their jagged edges invisibly in the darkness. Shaw, wary of fraying, kept the rope high. Several person heights above the river, he had the jagged rocks became large stones set more neatly together, and the climb evened out. Shaw pulled vertically with his arms and walked up the stones with his feet. The glow, its location and distance uncertain in the dark, drew closer, 
and then was suddenly abreast. The arrow had gone through the interlaced iron bars, protecting a small square ventilation hole, springing the grapnel against the wall of the shaft within. Torchlight flickered up the shaft. Shaw, looking through it, saw that it slanted down to meet a corridor. It would be a squeeze, but should be passable. He found a piton, wedged it into a space between the stones above the hole, and belayed the cord around it, removing his weight from the grapnel. The grapnel was well made, and he certainly trusted Max, but it was better all around not to push things to their limit. Again fumbling beneath his cloak, Shaw, with a small grunt of satisfaction, produced the bladder of the small southern amphibian he had employed to such effect earlier in their escape from the bilious gnome, and squirted foaming liquid on the iron bars. Shaw held his breath. The liquid hissed. The grating sagged, tilted, and swung free to dangle from Shaw's cord caught at the end of the grapnel. Shaw lowered the grating into the shaft, then followed it. The squeeze was indeed tight, but not nearly as bad as such things sometimes were. The incline was fortunately not steep. Mont appeared at the window and flopped headfirst over the edge. "'You do this sort of thing for fun?' he whispered. "'Why, don't you like it?' Shaw said distractedly. Quiet. He pushed himself further and slid down to the shaft's outlet. The corridor below was silent. Shaw eased his head out of the shaft and glanced quickly around. The corridor ran parallel to the outer wall, then angled back into the interior of the castle. Dust was thick on the narrow floor. The torchlight they had glimpsed outside was still little more than an orange glow, though it was brighter at the turning on the left. Shaw dropped to the floor and came up in a crouch, his hand in his rapier. Nothing stirred. Well, you know this palace, Shaw whispered back into the shaft. Which direction do we take? Mont, who had been getting tired of being scrunched uncomfortably up the shaft behind Shaw, appeared in the opening, then lost his balance and slid free. Shaw caught him with an arm and managed to lower him soundlessly to the floor. Mont shook his head, cocked it to one side, closed his eyes, and appeared to listen. It occurred to Shaw that Mont had probably been doing the same thing in the shaft, thus distracting himself enough to make him lose his hold. Still, it was entirely possible that whatever inner tunes he was hearing might indeed make his distraction worthwhile. Mont chewed his lip and opened his eyes. They were vague and unfocused. "'I think it's better on the right, away from the light,' Jurton Mont said. "'Let's go right.' Shaw finished stowing the grapnel, loosened the iron bar in his belt, and headed down the corridor to the right. Coming next, Chapter 11, The Curse of the Creeping Sword. <laughs>